Good morning. It's lovely to be here with you today. I've been asked to speak today on why I'm a Christian. My journey to faith began long before I was born. In the southeast of Nigeria, where my great-grandparents had left the native religion of the Igbo tribe and followed the religion of the white man, the Christian faith. In the fictional story, Things Fall Apart, the late great Chinua Achebe writes, the white man is very clever. He came quietly and peaceably with his religion. We were amused at his foolishness and allowed him to stay. Now he has won our brothers and our clan can no longer act like one. He has put a knife on the things that held us together and we have fallen apart. My great-grandparents, my great-grandfather, a priest in the village, ran a Christian school for Christian wives. In essence, this meant teaching Nigerian women how to bake cakes and serve tea. So from before my faith journey began, it was difficult to extricate my Christianity from the notion of Englishness and whiteness and colonialism. Even in Nigeria today, that is the case. Despite the fact that globally, the portrait painted of a Christian is more likely to look like me than many of you in the room. But we found that when we moved to the UK when I, I was aged four, that some people thought Christianity was just for white people, or that black Christianity was to be found somewhere else. I was born in Lagos, Nigeria, Africa's most populous city. And so from a young age, I was surrounded by people. Lagos is full of hustle and bustle. Its entrepreneurial spirit can be sensed as soon as you touch down at its airport. It clings to you like the sticky heat. But Lagos is not one-dimensional. As an African, I've often found the generally one-dimensional depictions of the vast, sprawling, diverse, and beautiful continent troubling. Narratives focus around, on one hand, its poverty and corruption, and on the other, the assumption of unbridled joy despite having very little, painting yet again a simplistic African story. As again Chinua Achebe once said, people go to Africa and confirm what they already have in their heads. And so they fail to see what is there in front of them. Before I moved to the UK, it never occurred to me that I was African. And therefore it had never occurred to me, obviously also because I was very young, that people would have a story in their heads about me as soon as they saw me or heard my name. But from a very young age, from going to primary school in southeast London in the 1980s, I very soon discovered the stories that people had about Africa, and therefore me, in their heads. Do you live in the jungle? Have you ever seen a lion? Did you have food to eat when you were in Africa? Rather than the heterogeneous, wonderful diversity of Africa that I now know exists, I was reduced to one single story. Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, my favorite author, who hails from the same tribe as me in Nigeria, the Igbo tribe, once said this in her TED talk on the danger of a single story. The single story creates stereotypes, and the problem with stereotypes is not that they are untrue, but that they are incomplete. They make the one story become the only story. My story did not include people who looked like me in positions of leadership, whether within the church or within the workplace and wider society. In Nigeria, everyone pretty much is black. Every judge, every police officer, every teacher. Most Christians in Nigeria are black. My surname is now MacDonald, 
I have married a very white, a very Yorkshire man, but my maiden name was Umbabebu, M-B-U-B-A-E-G-B-U. Its B's and G's were a spelling stumbling block to many, African and non-African alike. People were not used to it, it was unfamiliar. And at times I wondered whether it formed a barrier which had to be overcome before people got to know the person behind the name. Why do I tell you all this? I'll tell you this because I have now come to realize that our faith cannot be extricated from our lived experience. The stories that make up our journey shape how we see God and how we see ourselves in relation to the picture of God we have in our minds. Has anyone seen or read the book, The Shack? Spoiler alert, but this book and film portray the Trinity as the Son, a Middle Eastern man, the Holy Spirit, an Asian woman, and the Father, a black woman from the deep south of America who is affectionately known as Papa. When the film came out, it sparked outrage in some circles. Political correctness gone mad, they said. But another spoiler for you, God is not a white man. God is not an Englishman. Jesus never in ancient times walked upon England's mountains green. We talk about every one of us being made in God's image, but do we really believe that every race reflects the beauty of God? Do we recognize the impact of the way in which the picture of God we have in our heads impacts how we see ourselves and our faith? I remember when my mum and I both read the Shack book. It was mind-blowing. Suddenly we saw or read about a God in whom we could really see ourselves. I came across this article in Teen Vogue speaking about the, the Shack. It said this, after all, it's indisputable that the Christian God is most often, often depicted in our Western society as a white male, whether as God or as Jesus Christ. But for black Christians, there's the having to attempt to reconcile the popularly accepted image of Christ and Christian deities with the historical reality of what people from those geographical locations actually looked like. For some, this exercise in cognitive dissonance is truly exhausting. To, pre to pretend that in a region historically populated with black and brown people, that Jesus truly looked like a member of the Bee Gees feels not only intellectually insulting, but also nefarious, as if presenting Christ as anything less than a white male is offensive to the senses. And that's exactly where we find ourselves now in this discussion, grappling with the respectability politics of what is worthy or unworthy of being propagated as imagery of God. My Christianity is unable to be extricated not just from my race, but from my gender. We all know what the early church fathers thought about women. Second century theologian Clement of Alexandria said this, every woman should be filled with shame by the thought that she is a woman. The concept of the flawed female body, complete with its alien and mysterious functions, is deeply rooted in the history of the church. In the early church, women were thought incapable of joining the priesthood. According to Tina Beattie in God's Mother, Eve's Advocate, by virtue of the fact that their rational souls were housed in female bodies rather than male ones, and they were therefore incapable of symbolizing Christ as the embodiment of perfect humanity. These corporal issues are real challenges to my faith, and yet I remain a Christian. But my faith has evolved greatly along the way. My upbringing was steeped in an unquestioning yet faith-filled Christian faith. 
So much of the Christianity that formed my formative years was inextricably linked to culture and to ritual. The prayers before meals to bless the food and guarantee that it would do no harm to your body. The prayer over the kola nut during the traditional Nigerian marriage ceremonies. The not so subtle links between faith in God and the promise of financial prosperity, good health and long life. Looking back, I realized that those things became forefront in the minds of my extended family, because for many, there were real possibilities that they would not have those things. Financial prosperity, good health, and long lives were not to be taken for granted, and therefore were to be achieved through the grace of God. I spent much of my adolescence going to Christian events and Bible camps, in which we all thought we were going to be history makers, being unashamed of the gospel, bringing people to Jesus, while reading up on the defences of seven-day creationism and literal interpretations of the Bible. And so it was a shock when I arrived at Cambridge University to study theology, a naive 18-year-old who had not been prepared to face the huge intellectual challenges to my faith. Few things cause you to think again about where your staunchly held beliefs come from than having to defend yourself for an hour in a one-on-one -on -one supervision with an atheist who just happens to be an expert on the interrelationship between science and theology. I was not prepared to have the synoptic, synoptic gospels ripped apart. It seemed the Bible had not fallen directly from the mouth of God to the earth. There were discrepancies and differences that I had never noticed before. It was like I was reading an entirely different book. And then there was the study of psychology of charismatic worship, which made me question the feelings of the numinous I thought I had experienced in big Christian gatherings I had attended all my life or the problem of neuroscience and how your brain, let alone your upbringing, sociological nurture and your personality type, determine whether you're a person of faith or not. One of the stories that shook me most in my study was that of Phineas Gage. He was an American railroad construction foreman who survived an accident in which a large iron rod was driven completely through his head in the 19th century. It destroyed much of his brain's left frontal lobe, which contains the so-called God spot. For the remaining 12 years of his life, Phineas Gage's behavior completely changed. Where he was once a pious, God-fearing man, he became the opposite. So great was his change of character that his employers would not re-employ him. They described him as fitful, irreverent, grossly profane, and showed but little defense for his fellows. Impatient of restraint or advice, pertinaciously obstinate, capricious, and vacillating about his plans for the future. A child intellectually with the animal passions of a strong man. This was a real challenge to my personal faith because it made me second guess the religious faith I had held from a very young age. Was it all to do with my brain makeup? Aside from the theological and intellectual issues, there are the political ones that I have struggled with particularly over the past few years. The morning after the election of Donald Trump, I realized the things that I held really dear. I watched the tribe that I had once associated with and called myself a part of defend a misogynist racist without any questioning. It was like I woke up on that morning not recognizing my own family. And yet, and yet I remain a passionate Christ follower. Despite the misogyny and the racism and the colonialism and the intellectual gymnastics. 
because I've realized that God speaks not in the thunderbolts from heaven or the words of prophecy from others, but in the still, small voice that pushes me towards fighting for justice for all. In the sense that there are so many things in this world, from small acts of unkindness to huge structural issues, that suggest this is not how things are supposed to be. I find God in the nudge that propels me towards fighting for a better world, that still gets blown away by stories of untold grace and human forgiveness when it makes no sense to pardon another person. Intellectually, God, to me, became bigger when I let him out of the very small box I had squashed him into. The study of the unpredictability of quantum physics is evidence enough to me that while we may think we know all there is to know about the world, God may be far more mysterious than we can comprehend. God is far more open-hearted, welcoming, generous, and inclusive than I could ever hope to be. These are the things that I cling to. I choose to see God, the Imago Dei, in others, even those who are not like me, especially those who the world has forgotten, those living in abject poverty around the world, those who are right on my doorstep, yet invisible. I can't say for certain that I'm right about believing these things. As Francis Buffett says in his book, Unapologetic, I don't know if there's a God, and neither do you, and neither does Professor Dawkins, and neither does anybody. It isn't the kind of thing you can know. It isn't a knowable item. But then, like every human being, I'm not in the habit of entertaining only the emotions I can prove. I'd be an unrecognizable oddity if I did. I choose to believe in Christ because in those times when I have experienced suffering close up, I have taken comfort in a sense that God is right there in the midst of it, not promising to take the pain away right there and then because you've prayed hard enough, but pointing to a future in which all things will be made right in the end.